0: This morning we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, there is indeed no one like You. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that You would meet with us in Your Word. That by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You would fire in our hearts love for the Savior. That You would strengthen our faith. And that you would quicken our walk as we follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure how you would answer the question. But just so you know, if someone were to ask me, What is one of my favorite type of film? I would answer, War movies. I enjoy watching men struggle and the historical accounts and the drama that goes along with that. And two of the most famous that have been made are first, one from days gone by called The Longest Day. Some of you may be old enough to have watched it in the theaters, but for most of us, we've seen it in reruns. And it is An epic war movie, more than three hours long, and I think virtually every actor of note in Hollywood in that day is in that film. John Wayne, Henry Fonda, Mickey Rooney, everyone. To use a more modern example, there is another epic film called Saving Private Ryan. And this is known not only for its quality of acting, the visual sequence that's available through modern filmmaking made it such that men who had fought in the Second World War went into the theaters and had traumatic events. They were feeling like they were back on the beaches. Now again, if you're like me, you watch these films and you see these men with, as they charge machine gun nests, as they climb up sharp, Cliffs, as they go in the face of mortars and artillery, you may ask yourself, how do they do this? How is it possible that they can accomplish this? And I think the answer is that they knew what they were up against and they were ready. Before D-Day, there was an extensive amount of reconnaissance that was done by the Allies. They did extensive what would now be called 3D mapping so that they could tell exactly where the machine gun nests were placed, exactly where the hardened pillboxes were, where the artillery was. They had it all mapped out, and so everyone knew exactly what they had to do. They knew how many steps they had to take, which weapons to use at which periods of time, how to avoid crossfire. They were given a great deal of knowledge. Now, that didn't make storming the beaches of Normandy easy. But I dare say it did make it possible. And that is a human picture of the spiritual life. Because you see, we as Christians, as those who trust by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for our lives, we are in a battle. And we need to know about the battle. And that's what the Apostle Paul is giving to us here this morning. The very first thing he's going to encourage us is that we need to be recognizing the battle that is before us. We need to recognize the battle. And then secondly, we need to be recognizing the enemy that is before us. But then thirdly, let us not lose sight of recognizing our hope. Our hope in the midst of the battle thanks to Jesus, recognizing the battle, recognizing the enemy, and recognizing our hope. Let's begin then by looking at our passage before us at Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. We are coming now here to the last section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You've heard me say it before on many occasions that this letter, like all of Paul's letters, is mainly divided into two parts. The first part dealing with doctrine, the second part dealing with life. And in that, Paul has taken us to great heights. He has described to us who we are in Jesus and the blessings that we receive at Christ's hands. And then he has gone on to describe the new life and the new people of God that are found in Christ. He tells us we are a people of unity, and yet we are also a people who are diverse. We are a people of purity, and we are a people of harmony. But now, at verse 10, Paul begins a shortened third section, if you will, a practical application of all that has gone before. And the key here is to see at verse 10 where he says the phrase, finally. Now this signals a new logical section. It means that Paul is about to tell us something very practical for us in light of what he has taught us before. He's going to begin to describe a battle. And he wants us to know that the battle is real. And so, this phrase, finally, not only incorporates the meaning of a logical division, it has a a second meaning that I think Paul uses intentionally here, both meanings at once. It also means, for the rest of the time. And so what Paul is telling us is, not only is this a last section, but this last section describes how we are going to live the rest of our time as Christians. Now, I don't care if you're 6 or 66. The rest of your days as a follower of Jesus are going to be in a battle. That's what Paul is saying. You see, Paul wants to tell us that this experience of the battle is the rest of our lives and he wants us to be ready for the opposition that is facing us. God has told us that He is building a new society, the church, this wonderful people that is made up of all tongues, tribes, and nations where there is unity in Christ and yet diversity of language, of skin color, of ethnicity. Satan knows that and he wants to destroy it. Paul has told us, That Jesus Christ has broken down the walls that separate people and that incite hatred. Satan knows this and he wants to rebuild the walls. God has told us to abandon our sin and to live lives of holiness and purity. And Satan knows this. And he desires nothing more than to see us abandon holiness for sin. And then finally, Paul has just got through telling us how wonderful our marriages, our families, and our work life can be. Living testimonies to the grace of God and the work of the gospel. And how we can have blessed families, marriages And lives. And Satan knows this, and he wants to sow discord and trouble in our marriages, in our families, and in our lives. There is a battle before you and me. And too often, we think the struggle is over. Too often, we think we've gotten over the hump and everything should be easy. We know that there has been a momentous change in our lives... ...as we've come to express faith in Jesus Christ. We know we are not who we once were. Perhaps we don't use the same language. Perhaps we're much more conscious about how we treat others. We have a different view of the scriptures... ...a different view of prayer... ...a different view of life and the universe. Nothing is the same. But we can be tempted to think that because of that change... Now Jesus owes us. He owes us peace. He owes us health. He owes us wealth. That we are to have a time of ease now that that change has happened. And Paul here is telling us that there is a very real battle before us. And we must, we must understand this. Now, we need reminding of this fact that the victory in Jesus is sure. Jesus did indeed cry, it is finished. There is no other work of atonement to be done. Because of the work of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. They are removed as far as the east is from the west. There is no other second work that needs to be done by God or by us. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a battle. Now, if you're confused by that, let me give you a military illustration. When the Allies landed on D-Day, the Germans fought them ferociously at Normandy. Because Normandy was not just some sand. The Germans knew that if the Allies got on the beaches and weren't driven off the beaches, that they were never going to be driven out of France. And they knew if they were never going to be driven out of France, that Germany was going to lose the war. It's why Germany constructed the Atlantic Wall. Their entire outset of this war was to keep the Allies off the continent because they knew once they got on the continent, it was really just a matter of time. This is the way we need to view the work of Jesus. Paul is picking up this martial, warlike imagery. Jesus has won the victory. But just like in Europe, there were still battles to be fought. There were casualties taken. There was pain and suffering. So true we see that here in our own Christian lives. We don't live lives of ease and of comfort. There is still a battle before us because our enemy seeks to destroy the work of Jesus. That's why Paul picks up all of this imagery of war He tells us to be strong in verse 10. To be ready to train like a soldier. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Now, you have to have a visual image here in your mind of the whole armor. Some of us are used to thinking about armor from seeing some modern movies where a man has perhaps a couple of pieces of armor on his arms, Maybe something around his waist. But he looks like he's more ready to take a swim than to fight a battle. This kind of armor was hoplite armor. It was the armor of the heavy infantry of the day. It was armor that made a man as much like a tank as you possibly could back in those days. The man was completely encased in armor, protected in all sides, and he was the fearsome warrior of the ancient days. Paul tells us that we are to wrestle, that is, to have hand-to-hand combat with our enemies, and we are to stand firm over and over again. Paul is reminding us of this imagery of war and of battle. Because now is not the time for complacency. We are to be ready for this battle because of who we are in Jesus that means the battle comes to us. Satan is not concerned with those who reject Christ. Satan is pleased to leave alone those who will speak against Christ. It is those who are following Jesus, who profess that he is Lord. Those are the ones that Satan wishes to attack. Now the second thing about this is we have to understand that the battle is not what we think it is. The battle is not obvious. Now, we're used to seeing that as well, seeing two obvious sides in battle. You might think of the Revolutionary War. As I see reenactments or hear accounts of the Revolutionary War, I often wonder whose idea it was to go into battle dressed in bright red, in a large mass in the face of guns. It's almost like they should have put signs on them that said, shoot me. You knew exactly who was on each side. You had different color uniforms. That's hard for us to think about today with camouflage, but different nations specifically had different bright colored uniforms so you could tell the sides apart. And sometimes we have that mentality with the battle of the Christian life. We think we should easily be able to see who the other side is so we can point and say, that's them. We're going to fight them. But that's not how the enemy comes to us. You see, what we want is a battlefield that we can survey and go into when we think it's safe enough. And so we think the enemy is the media or politicians, or cultural expressions, or society. But we have to understand that the fight that is before us, the battle that God has put us in, is much deeper and bigger than that. Paul tells us in verse 12 who our battle is against. He says, Our fight is not against flesh and blood, that is, human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now I have to tell you, the enemy is not the people on the news. It's not the people who post stories on your Facebook feed that you don't like. That's not the enemy the real enemy are the spiritual forces of darkness. They are the ones who hate the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom and His people and seek at all times to destroy them. It's not The people who are critical. It is the spiritual forces, the demonic beings that are critical. And this is something that the Ephesians would understand. I don't know if you recall the story in Acts chapter 19 when Paul was in Ephesus. And there were some folks who thought that they had figured out the battle. They would find people who weren't doing the right things and they would say, We cast out demons the seven sons of skeva they were called they went up to someone who was possessed by a demon and they said we tell you demons to get out and the demon looked right at them and he said jesus i know and paul i know but i don't know who you are and he routed them they weren't prepared for the battle They didn't understand it was a spiritual battle against the forces of darkness and it needed to be fought with the weapons of God, not the weapons of man. If we don't understand that it's a supernatural battle, we will lose. We've seen the difficulties in our history of fighting the wrong battle, haven't we? When the United States first became involved in the war in Vietnam, We were not prepared for the Vietnam War. We tried to fight in Vietnam like we fought in World War II, in Europe, and in Japan, and then again in Korea. We didn't realize it was a different kind of war, that our enemies had different tactics, that they had different objectives. We needed to change our way of fighting war. We didn't have difficulty in the war in Vietnam because our soldiers were not trained. We didn't have difficulty because we didn't have proper equipment and weaponry. We had difficulty because we were not fighting the right fight. And this can happen to us as Christians as well. If you're not fighting against the forces of darkness, you will be overcome. It is a spiritual war. And this brings us to the second thing that Paul helps us with. We must recognize that the battle is real, but we must also recognize the enemy. We must recognize the enemy and his power. Now Paul describes the enemy in verse 12 with four terms. He says they are rulers, they are authorities, they are cosmic powers, and they are spiritual forces. Now some commentators spend a lot of ink trying to determine the organization of these four terms. Which term refers to the generals of the enemy? Which one are the colonels? Which one are the lieutenants? But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. What Paul wants us to see is that there are demonic forces at work fighting against the kingdom of Christ. And we have to understand that they are powerful forces. That is why Paul describes them this way. They are rulers because they have power in the world. Now, how can this be? Can these demonic rulers be in charge of the world? No. We have to believe, along with Martin Luther, that even the devil is God's devil. And so they are not in control over the world. But they do have power in the world because of sin in the world. Because there is darkness, because there is hate, because there is sin, they flourish in those places of darkness and hate and sin. They do exercise power because of sin. Paul calls them cosmic powers to refer to the way in which They try to run the world system that has fallen and broken since the fall. They have power and they should not be taken lightly. The last thing that you want to do in a battle is to underestimate your enemy. And you see, this is what Satan tries to convince us to do. If Satan cannot convince you, to be paralyzed paralyzed with fear because he's in control of everything and is as powerful as God, then he will take the exact opposite tactic to try to convince you he doesn't even exist and you shouldn't worry about him at all. But you see, Paul wants us to be ready for the battle. He wants us to know that while our enemy has power, that power is linked to the brokenness of the world. You see, the power of our enemy is always one of wickedness. Do you see how it's described about the present darkness? The evil day? You see, they hate the light. They love the darkness. They love sin. This helps us to understand our enemy. Where they flourish where they have challenges, how we can defeat them. They are the forces of evil, Paul says, in the heavenly places. Now this shows us that their power is more than a natural power. It is a supernatural power. It is a manifestation of rebellion against God. That is our enemy. But there's more to our enemy than power. We must also know that our enemy is cunning. He is crafty. Too often we are concerned about frontal assaults on us. We think that we will always see the attack of the enemy coming. We think that the attack of the enemy is persecution. And we'll have plenty of warning before persecution comes. We'll see it on TV. We'll see it in the legislature. We'll know when we need to be ready for the battle when persecution comes. But you see, the enemy is deceptive. He's crafty. To go back to our illustration once again of D Day, do you know that at Normandy, the Germans didn't have sufficient numbers of troops? They had virtually no tanks, they had no reserves. For the most important battle that they would have in the entire war. Do you know why? Because the Allies had completely convinced them that they were going to land at another place, Calais. And they convinced them by constructing an entire army of inflatable tanks and planes and troops. You see, that is a part of war, deception. Why would we think that our enemy would not use that? work. Why would we think he would be above deception? He is a liar from the beginning. And so Paul tells us that we need to be strong and we need to put on the armor of God to stand against his schemes. The old King James puts it this way, the wiles of the enemy. Now, lest you think that this is not that big of a deal, somebody's Scheme. Maybe you're thinking of harebrained schemes. A better translation might be stratagems. Like in a war. The word itself suggests methods. The methods of the enemy. And the method of the enemy is to lie and cheat and steal. This is exactly the same word scheme that is used in chapter 4 verse 14 to describe... The false teaching of teachers. It is cunning. It is intended to deceive. Now the devil is experienced at this kind of warfare. As a matter of fact, the word for devil in the Greek means someone who throws something against someone else. That's the title and name of our enemy. He is the slanderer. He is the deceiver. He is the one who attacks the people of God. And the Bible wants us to be ready to fight this enemy. That's why our enemy is called the devil, the deceiver, 37 times in the New Testament. And you see, our enemy knows how to suit his tactics to the ground of the battle. We might imagine persecution to be the worst thing he could throw at us. But as we look around the world... Where there is persecution, the church is flourishing. The church father, Tertullian, put it this way, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if we go to places like China or Sudan or India or Saudi Arabia, if we go to places where Christianity is illegal and where the church is under duress, what we see are believers who are completely sold out for Jesus. Because there's no excuse or reason other than Jesus to be in church. You see, persecution is not the enemy's greatest weapon. What he wants to do is he wants to trick us into compromise. He wants to convince you that it really isn't that bad to deny this part of God's word. That really you can do this and it's really harmless. You can steal a little. You can be a little hateful. You can be a little untruthful, and it'll stop there. Sin never stops. Once it has an entry, it always seeks to grow and to dominate. Another thing that Satan wants to do to us is to confuse us into error. He wants you to not be sure of the truth of God's word. He wants you to not really understand how or why Jesus is fully God and fully man. He wants you not to understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wants you to be doubtful and skeptical that the Bible is the very word of God. He wants to confuse you so you go into error and so that you are weaponless and harmless against Him. One commentator puts it this way, I think well. The tactics of intimidation and insinuation alternate in Satan's plan of campaign. He plays both the bully and the beguiler. Force and fraud form his chief offensive against the camp of the saints, practiced by turns. Satan will seek to deceive you. He will seek to attack you. He is your enemy. Well, what then do we do? We're in a hot zone. We're in the middle of a battle. You say to me, Pastor, we have an enemy who is against us. And he is powerful. And he is crafty. How can we possibly handle ourselves in the battle? It would be like the statement, perhaps apocryphal, that was said that the life expectancy of a second lieutenant in Vietnam in a hot zone was something under two minutes. How can we possibly survive against an enemy in such a battle? This is where Paul began at verse 10. Look with me. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. God gives you a command, and it is an interesting command. It is a passive command. You be strong in the Lord. Be equipped in the Lord. You are to do this, but it is outside of your power. It is to be done to you by God. It's the same way that Paul spoke. The same verb when he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's the way our father Abraham was described in Romans chapter 4, that he grew strong in his faith. And he gave glory to God. You see, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can survive and thrive and be victorious in the battle, in the strength of God. Now, do you see this? That it's not our inability that matters. It's God's ability. Look at how Paul describes it. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, that's almost bad grammar. I probably have to stop the English teachers among us from taking a pencil and crossing some of these words out. Paul's repeating himself. We have to be strong, in strength, of might. Paul, couldn't you just say it once? No, we can't. Because that's the whole idea. He wants us to know that the true rule in the world is God's rule and that God's power is overpowering, that none can overpower God. This word here that he uses for strength, you know through an English translation, it is kratos. It means cratic, like a democratic government. It is the rule of the people. You see, it is the rule that God has in his world. And this trio of words that he uses strong strength might it reminds us of God's true power and God's true power is found where in the gospel that's what Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation unless we think we need more power than this these same three words that are used Paul uses earlier in chapter 1 verse 19 when he's describing God's power. Strengthening in the power of His might. Do you know what that power does? It raises Jesus Christ from the dead. The power you have available to you in the battle is the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. How could you possibly need more power than that? God has not left us alone to see how we will fare against the enemy. No, he calls on us to trust him, to be strong in his strength. That is why it is his strength, it is his armor that we are to wear. And there is a reason that Paul tells us all this. Because we are to be standing in the power of God. Paul tells us about the reality of the battle. He tells us about the nature of our enemy. He tells us about the power of God. Why? So that we would stand. That's why he wants us to know this. This is not an academic question. You will face challenges from the enemy. You are in a personal battle with a powerful enemy. Even the word that Paul uses to describe this battle, wrestling, it is a personal hand-to-hand combat. We might say it is mano a mano. It is not shooting from afar. It is up close and personal. And God has given you the strength to stand. He has given you His armor, He says in verse 11, that you may be able to stand. To the end that, to the aim that you would stand, He has given you this armor. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You know what you do when you see a therefore, right? You look back to see what the therefore is there for. What's verse 12? It's describing the nature of our enemy. Because our enemy is so fierce, because our enemy is so wicked, because our enemy is so cunning, therefore, take up the armor of God. And you will be equipped. We are to resist. And to oppose the enemy. Now God is calling you today. To stand firm. You are to offer resistance. To the enemy. The image could not be more clear. The words and the phrases that Paul used. Could have come out of the Greek historians. Xenophon or Thucydides. Describing a battle. Next week we'll look more closely at the armor we are to put on. But for today, what you have to understand is wearing that armor is not optional. God has equipped us because He has enrolled us in His army. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, lock and load, strap it on, Because the battle is before us. And we go forward in the strength of the Lord and our enemy has no chance of victory. Praise be to the Lord for equipping us and saving us in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning that you have given us such hope and encouragement in the midst of our struggles and the battle. Lord, there is none like you. We ask that you would find us faithful. We ask that you would give us all of the strength that we need to fight the battles that are before us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.